The Veterans Readiness and Employment Program, known as VR&E, has been struggling with a number of challenges for a number of years. Those include two failed attempts at an updated case management system, understaffed, undertrained, and overworked counselors, and a lack of awareness or accessibility to benefits among veterans themselves. That's why some members of Congress, with the backing of some veteran support organizations, are calling for a fourth administration in the Department of Veterans Affairs focused on transition, employment, and education. Federal News Network's Daisy Thornton has been following all of this and joins me now with the details. And Daisy, let's talk about these calls for a fourth administration. What's going on? So currently the Veterans Readiness and Employment Program, or VRE, falls under the Veterans Benefits Administration. But the prevailing opinion is that the Veterans Benefit Administration has too many other priorities. VRE is taking a back seat. Here's what Shane Learman, Deputy National Legislative Director for Disabled American Veterans, had to say about the current dynamic during last week's hearing of the House Veterans Affairs Subcommittee on Economic Opportunity. The Undersecretary for Benefits is going to focus generally on claims, benefits, appeals, the backlog. The only time that they're getting involved with the VRE and education issues is when there's a problem. So that's why if you separate them out, you're actually going to do three things. You're going to, one, release a burden off the Undersecretary of Benefits to not have to oversee and manage yet additional programs. Two, you're going to provide the oversight and accountability required for education and VRE services. And three, you're going to improve this for disabled veterans using the system, not just for education and voc rehab, but also for claims, decisions, and appeals because they'll be able to focus. So I think those three things can be achieved if there is a fourth administration. That was Shane Learman, the Deputy National Legislative Director for Disabled American Veterans. And Learman isn't alone in this assessment. California Democrat Mike Levin, chairman of the subcommittee, introduced a bill last year that would do just this, along with fellow Representative Brad Wenstrup, a Republican from Ohio. And Marco Rubio, the Republican senator from Florida, and Maggie Hassan, Democratic senator from New Hampshire, also co-sponsored the bill. So the House passed the Veterans Education Transition and Opportunity Prioritization Plan Act last May, but the Senate has been sitting on it ever since. All right. So at least there's some evidence of bipartisan support for this idea. What about benefits they think this would bring besides a reduction in backlog, as Learman said? And of course, backlogs are always a bugaboo. But what else do they see ahead for this, Daisy? So one of the major issues is, re- is education. The veteran support organizations told the subcommittee that both veterans and VRE counselors need more education about the benefits and programs offered. For example, VRE has five tracks for veterans to follow in their transition from military to civilian life reemployment, rapid access to employment, self employment, employment through long term services, and independent living services. But only 162 veterans are currently enrolled in the self employment track out of more than 88,000 in the VRE program. Jeremy Villanueva, Government Affairs Associate Director for the Wounded Warrior Project, said the demand far exceeds even that. Here's what he had to say. One of my reoccurring mantras that I always say when it comes to almost any benefit that is underutilized or issue that seems to come up before you know the various committees is that there needs to be a better educational effort put out by the VA to let veterans know what benefits are available to them and to explain to them how they can get them. Again, 38% of our warriors surveyed said that they wanted to own their own business, but by far the largest track that they used was the employment and education one because they did not understand that they could go out and put out their shingle or get started with their IT business or whatever business that they have uh, with the help of VR&E. 
That was Jeremy Villanueva, Government Affairs Associate Director for the Wounded Warrior Project. But education isn't the only issue. Villanueva said the self-employment track is only available to the most significantly disabled veterans. But the term significant employment handicap is usually a subjective determination decided by individual counselors. There's no uniform definition. So veterans rarely appeal those determinations. And when they do, VSOs have to start by contacting the counselor for more information. Yeah, I guess it depends on what type of work you're trying to get for which you might be significantly impaired. And so there's a million variables. So it sounds like this whole VR and E needs to release more specific guidance. And I'm thinking it's going to be long and detailed. And then they have to train all the counselors in it. Exactly. And Nick Pamperin, Executive Director for Veterans Readiness and Employment at the Veterans Benefits Administration, said VR and E has begun providing counselors with micro-learning sessions on specific components like eligibility determination. But the VSOs told Congress that training still focuses on subjective determinations, and the highly specialized nature of the training itself still leaves counselors unfamiliar with certain programs, like the self-employment track. For example, Julie Howell, Associate Legislative Director for Government Relations at the Paralyzed Veterans of America, described her own experiences going through the VRNE program. I will always be grateful to my VRNE counselor. However, he made it as difficult as possible to engage with a program of study that I was hoping to engage with. He needed a lot of education around not only the program, my disability, and how those things sort of worked with one another. Often on the webpage you read that they offer um, help with resume writing or help finding jobs and help with placement. For me to even be approved in the program, I had to deliver a resume that would have gotten me a job. I had to prove that the program had you know, a certain threshold for uh, earnings. I had to show there was a demand for this program. So the resources that were supposed to be provided to me through the counselor actually became a benchmark for me to provide in order to be enrolled in the program. And so I found it relatively frustrating and stressful, and we hear that a lot from veterans. That was Julie Howell, Associate Legislative Director for Government Relations at the Paralyzed Veterans of America, describing her own experiences going through the VRNE program. All of this then mitigates in favor of that bill that would create this fourth administration for VRNE then? Yeah, so the idea is that it would help solve these problems and others. For example, VRNE's current data management system doesn't provide a lot of necessary data to organizations like VSOs, the Veterans Board of Appeals, and even the VRNE counselors themselves. VRNE has been trying to update that system since 2015. They've spent $26 million so far on two failed attempts, and the contract for their third attempt isn't expected until March. It also doesn't track veterans' outcomes in the program, which leaves them without necessary data to make decisions on how to improve it. Dealing with this outdated system also adds more work on the counselors who are already understaffed. Pamperin said VRNE currently has 89 counselor vacancies, but he also said VBA is preparing to launch a national vocational counselor announcement on USA Jobs, which will hopefully cut down on the hiring timeline. And VRNE is working on enhancements to its digital assistant application, EVA. Those include the ability to send, sign, and directly upload documents to the Veterans Benefits Management System, which will hopefully save counselors time instead of manually processing paperwork. So the idea is that this fourth administration will allow VR&E to focus more and have more resources on solving these challenges. And Daisy, do we have any expression of support for this from VA itself? Has, say, Secretary McDonough weighed in on it yet? Not that I'm aware of. Federal News Network's Daisy Thornton, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style 
developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. 
Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.